Let's stand and open our Bibles together. Judges chapter 11, we'll read verses 1 through 11. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. He was the son of an harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said to him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Israel, the children of Ammon, made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Why are ye coming to me now when you're in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord. A large part of faith is trusting God when... We can't understand the circumstances, and that's a point that many Christians never reach in their spiritual life, and we see that in the life of Jephthah. One of the questions that I kept asking as I read Hebrews 11 and saw Jephthah mentioned there, what was it about Jephthah's faith that was so impressive to God? What is it that God is trying to highlight? Go back with me to verse 1. To look at Jephthah's life for a minute, one of the most immediate things that jumps out of this passage was the fact that he didn't have a privileged beginning like so many of us. If you look at the times that these men were living in, and most of us are defined by our times and regrettably even defined by our culture. And the Bible says that every man in this day and age that he was living was doing that which was right in their own eyes. And there was a lot of wickedness. It was prevalent. Jephthah's dad and mother were no different. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us he was the son of a prostitute. His dad had gone out and paid for a woman. And through that immoral act, she had conceived a son. And Jephthah, growing up in this home, was an outcast. Matter of fact, at some point, the half-brothers didn't want to share their inheritance. And I can't imagine Jephthah's Youth was one where he suffered constant comments and ridicule. He laughed at and looked down upon. The word of God just was almost unknown, unused. Didn't cross people's minds during this time period. And sin was out of control. And here's a man who was raising a child that no one in the family even wanted. And at some point, they ran him off. The Bible says, verse 2, They thrust out Jephthah and said to him, Thou shalt not inherit 
in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Not only was he disregarded in the home, he was discarded. He started out scarred, and it marred his future, and he walked away from all of that. I hurt for those that have suffered in their childhood. There are a lot of things in your past you can't change. I hurt for those that have been abused, and I hurt for those that grew up in the home of a drunk, those that had a mom that was never present, or those that grew up with parents that were constantly fighting, and some kids don't even know who their real mom or real daddy is. Let me just say this. I, I hurt for those that have had to suffer in their childhood. It wasn't Jephthah's fault that he was dealing with this. This was the fault, the sin of his parents, but he was paying for the sin of his parents. But the good thing is we have a God of grace. We have a God that looks down from heaven. It doesn't matter what society thinks about you, what people think about you. It doesn't matter how people treat you. God loves you. And here's what I like in this study of these men mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Each one, despite their past or despite their family or despite the obstacles that they face or despite their defects or their lack of abilities, God used them and that gives me hope. Hope that God can use me. Don't think for a minute, but be, because of your past or because of something that happened to you or because of your childhood, that God simply can't use you. That's a lie of the devil. Not only can God use you, God wants to use you. And humanly speaking, we may look at a situation like this and see people that have been victims of their circumstances, and we may say, what hope do they have? Well, humanly speaking, they may not have any hope at all. But thank God there's a power that is greater than any of us. Thank God that his grace is sufficient to overcome any sin. His forgiveness can cleanse us from any iniquity. And God had a plan for Jephthah. Society didn't have a plan. His own, his own family didn't have a plan. Their only plan was get out, get away from us. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe some of you in this auditorium this morning have felt like that or even lived a very similar experience. And Satan will take that stick and beat you over the head till you faint. Thinking because of something tragic that happened to me or something that I suffered, surely God can't use me and God can and wants to. Now here's what I like about this chapter. In reading this, just yesterday alone, I probably read this chapter 30 or 35 times. But one of the things that is highlighted in this chapter is the sovereignty of God in the lives of men. And there is a sovereign God that will accomplish his sovereign will. Now, oftentimes that conflicts with our will. We wish the sovereign God would act in accordance to our will. He doesn't always do that. And here's what Jephthah does. He flees, verse 3, from his brethren. He dwells in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men, a very interesting word. What kind of person was Jephthah? What we know is a rough, rough cob. Maybe we call him a roughneck in some sense of the word. With a rough band of men. But David also gathered a pretty rough band of men. Together when he was in the wilderness, men that were in distress, in despair, in debt. I imagine it's a very similar group. 
And uh, maybe he was the Robin Hood of his day, stealing from the rich and distributing it to the poor. We don't know the details, but we do know he was simply surviving and through this. Now, in, in these circumstances, God can take what man means for bad and use it for good. And this story shows us that God delights in using the unusable. But here's what I like about Jephthah. He's determined to rise above his circumstances. Now, here's what Satan wants you to do. If you've had a rough past or a rough upbringing, he wants you to use your past as an excuse for failure in the future. He wants you to say, well, my dad was an angry man, and because of that, I'm an angry man. My dad was abusive, and that, you know, I suffer with his DNA, and because of that, I'm an abusive person. And your past and what you suffered in your youth is no excuse for your sin today or your sin in the future. And here's what society has taught us. You have, listen, you have a syndrome. You have a personality disorder. You know, the root problem of all of that is sin. You know what you have? You have a sin that needs dealt with in your life. Jephthah wasn't using his past as an excuse. He was seeking to overcome his past. And he's out there with this group. And I love Scripture, and I love the way God words things in Scripture. Look what he says in verse 4. And it came to pass in the process of time. You know what this means? God is going to make his will happen. God's at work. God's moving. And God is going to accomplish his purpose. It came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead. Look at, look at the twist and turns in the irony of life. How many ever thought about the ironies of life, and this was a great one, that the same man that they had cast out and said, we don't want to have anything to do with you and you can't have any part in our inheritance. Now when times are tough and the enemies come and they're suffering a national crisis and they have no answer, the first person they look to, I don't think this was the last chance ministries. I don't think this was their last choice. You know, when you're going to battle, you're not looking to pick a loser. When your life and the welfare of your children depend upon victory, I don't think you're saying eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Who is willing to take the challenge? I think they were looking for the best man, the most qualified. They were looking for a winner. If you take kids out here in a parking lot and divide them into two baseball teams, they're not looking for the runt. They're not looking for the worst man in the batter box. They're looking for someone that will help that team win these guys said, we're going to war. Who in the world can take this challenge? And they all said in unison, oh, we know the man for the job, just who wants to go get him? I don't know how happy he's going to be about... Now, let me just say this. They changed their mind. In a moment of crisis, they realized they made a mistake by casting him out. And now they've changed their mind. And let me just throw this out. There's nothing wrong with repentance. Some of you need to figure that out at some point in your life. All of us occasionally make a bad choice, but our pride rarely allows us to admit that. So they've cast him out, and then when the battle comes, the crisis comes, they look around and say, we need someone that's rough. We need someone that's tough. We need someone that's a leader. We need someone that can overcome obstacles. We need someone that will lead us in the battle. And they all look around and said, Jephthah. 
They didn't have cell phones. It would have been easier by a cell phone just to make a call, but they've got to travel 80 miles. I could imagine Jephthah and his band of vain men, muscular, square jaws, unshaven, unbathed. They're sitting around outside their cave with their camels tethered nearby. The dust is blowing. Someone's chewing on a stick and spitting the leftovers out of his mouth. And here comes, the Bible says, the elders of Gilead. Their suits and ties. And their <laughs> feeble minds and feeble bodies. And dignified look, but sheepishly. Can you imagine as the elders gather together and there's Jephthah with his band? <laughs> so what do you guys want today? Uh, you. You know what? The smartest thing they did for themselves, their families, and their nation was simply admit their mistake and repent. You know the smartest thing you can do, man, and I know this is hard, but occasionally that wife will look at you and say, that might not have been a good choice, but in your pride... Simply because it's your wife, you can't admit. You may be right. Now, for the love of the Father, for the sake of your family, and for your future, it might be a good idea to admit occasionally that she may be right. 21 years of marriage, and I'm waiting for that day. I'm ready. I'm prepared. With humility, I want to admit it when it happens. Amen. No, that's hard. I've had to admit it. I've had to look my wife in the eye and say, you know what, babe? I made a mistake. We've made mistakes, and it, it never hurt anyone to repent and make things right, and that's what they do. Hey, we made a mistake by casting this man out. So they come to him in verse 6, and they say to Jephthah, come and be our captain. Now, here's what I want you to think about. His life had become one of hardship and survival. But did you know God was using all of this to prepare him? This group that he had gathered together, the life he had lived, had prepared him for this moment. And instead of becoming angry and bitter at your past and what you've had to survive, listen, that's a tool of Satan. You've fallen into a trap. And there's nothing worse than getting with someone that's constantly... Speaking of their past, reliving. Listen, if it was bad enough that you cried over it the first time, why do you want to relive it a thousand times over? There have been times in life when I was reading a book, a good book, and then you come to a chapter that's just awful and you, you want to get through it, you want to get it, you just skip it, bypass it. I'm not going to read that same chapter a thousand times. Be moaning, say, wow, what a lousy chapter. And I watch people do that in life. You had a lousy chapter in life. Instead of closing that chapter and moving on, you get to relive it. You lay down at night and you torture yourself by reliving the same tragedy. You got in that same car accident. You suffered that same divorce 587 times. You say, Pastor, you don't understand. I do understand. All of us have suffered tragedy. We've had low moments in life, heartaches, surgeries. Watch my children walk through the valley of death. Watch my own father for years as he suffered. I'm not going to relive those tragedies. I relive the good moments. 
thankful for all the good times and the good memories. Here's what we do. We allow Satan to torture us with those things. So they come and say, hey, be our captain. Can you imagine the look on his face when these words stumble out of their mouths? I wonder how they said it. Why don't you come here, Kim? He said, what? Can you say that louder? We want you to be our captain. Uh, could you repeat that so I can understand it? Did you say captain? Did you say cast away or cast out or cast off or captain? We said captain. Oh, really? You know, he's, he's going to accept the position. He's just not going to let it die this easy. <laughs> Flesh and blood. We're, we're still dealing with human nature. Although I believed he was a saved man, he just wasn't Christian. Be careful because we've been in the same spot. More saved than Christian, amen. He says, let me just ask you a question. Verse 7, did not ye hate me and expel me? And now are ye coming to me when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead, with their suits and ties, said, Therefore we turn again to thee now, and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said, Hold on for a minute, are you guys just trying to use me? Is this a temporary position? You want me to go fight your battle for you, and as soon as I finish, you throw me back out here into the wilderness? Jephthah was no dummy. Jephthah said, Let's, let's just make some things clear here. If I'm your captain, I'm not going to be your captain for two days or two months or until the battle's won, till we wave the flag of victory and then you throw me back out into the desert. I know you scoundrels. Can you see that matted beard and that chiseled look? Matted hair. Did you understand what I'm saying? And the men said, yes, we'll be in agreement with that. Verse 11. Now, here's what I want you to see. Because when looking at the life of Jephthah, the thing that we most remember is his vow. But most know very little about Jephthah or his life outside of his vow. And the only thing we can think about was he made a vow and offered his daughters a sacrifice, but we don't understand the entire circumstance or what was going through his mind at the time that he made the vow. Look what the Bible says in verse 11. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in But Now, here was a man that was very conscious of the presence of God, the power of God, the will of God during this circumstance. Now, we know God wasn't physically, visibly present, but we do know that Jephthah was very aware, and he said, we're going to make a pact. We're speaking before God in the very presence of God. Now, here's what I like about Jephthah. How many of you have heard Jephthah mentioned, and usually this terminology is used, what a rash vow. Normally, anytime he's mentioned, that's the word that is used to describe his vow. But there's only one problem with that, because Jephthah wasn't a rash or compulsive person. When he's chosen as a leader, does he just gather his men together, they pick up their swords, and they run out to fight? No. The Bible says the first thing he did was seek peace. He sends a messenger. He writes a letter to the king of Ammon, and he says, listen, 
I just want to ask you a favor. It's not really wise to invade these lands. Now, the question today is the same question that they were trying to answer back then. Whose land is this? Whose land is that in Israel? Jerusalem. Now, I know they are constantly fighting there in the Middle East, and there are a group of people called the Palestinians that claim that land. But the bottom line is we know biblically that is God's land, and God has the right to give it or take it from anyone or loan it. But God says, that's my land, and I gave it to Israel. I want you to understand the incredible faith that Jephthah had. Because after studying this passage last night, I think he has maybe the greatest faith that I see in Scripture. It's amazing that during these times, instead of being defined by his times, yes, I know that he was the son of a prostitute. I know his dad was devious. I know that he was cast out into the wilderness. I know all this, but Jephthah was not a history buff, but rather someone very familiar with the Pentateuch. Now, who taught him the Bible? Because when you see, I want you to take time sometime during this week, read this passage, look at his response, look at the way he responds to the king of Ammon in his letter. He's rehearsing things found in Scripture. He's almost quoting Numbers 20. This is a man that knows Scripture. God gave this land to Israel, and he says, listen, when Israel was coming up out of Egypt and they wanted to pass through this land, they asked very politely, hey, can we pass through? But you didn't want to trust them. You didn't want to believe them. And you said no. So you forced them to go into battle, and God gave them the victory. Verse 21. The Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites. Look at verse 23. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And shouldest thou possess it? Now when you read this text, here's what you're going to see. Faith is based on an understanding of the sovereignty of God. Now, there's a lot of confusion over the sovereignty of God. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God, you cannot live by faith. If you don't understand God is in control and he will accomplish his purposes, man cannot frustrate him. Man cannot defeat him. God will do as he pleased. The Bible still says, and is very applicable to this generation, that God sits in the heaven and laughs. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh at them. As if man thinks he could stand up, oppose God, and accomplish his own purposes. God will do his own will in his perfect time. And here's what Jephthah understands. He understands God is sovereign. So he sends a letter. He doesn't jump into battle. He doesn't act rashly. He doesn't respond immediately. He sends a messenger. The response is, we're going to battle. So he sends another messenger, a second messenger, saying, 
Let me ask you a question. Do you not understand that you tried this before and God defeated you? It wasn't Israel. It wasn't their power. It wasn't their army. They didn't have trained soldiers. This was God accomplishing his purpose. So he asked him, do you really want to fight God? That's a good question. Let me ask you that. Do you really want to fight God? Tell me that's smart. Are you willing to fight God on a supposition? And that was his question to the king of Ammon. And Jephthah said, I know the scripture. I've read the scripture. And I know God has a plan. And I know God is sovereign. And when I go into this battle, I'm going to go in with confidence because I know God's will and God's purpose. And God has given this to his people. So if you lift a finger, if you lift a sword, if you come into battle... It'll be like a professional boxer going against a fifth grader. Not going to turn out well. Do you really want to come to the ring with me? That's what Jephthah was saying, the message he was sending to the king of Ammon. He said, do you really want to get busted up? Do you really want to go into battle with the king of kings and the lord of lords? Do you really want to fight God? Is this a wise choice? And because no light turned on, he said... Yes, let's fight. Not a good choice. Now look what happens in verse 28, 29. Verse 29 says, 28 says, How may the king of the children of Ammon hearken not unto the words of Jephthah? Now were these his words or were these God's words? This was the word of God. He was showing him the scripture. Now remember this. Remember that Jephthah was not living during, during a time when everyone was going to the temple. This, he was not living during a time when everyone was following the word of the Lord. He was living during a time when they had abandoned the word of the Lord and every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. So how was it that Jephthah had this kind of knowledge of the word of God? How was it that he had this kind of faith now, when we look at Abram and we look at Noah and we look at Moses and we look at these other men, Here's why I can respect Jephthah's faith even more because those men had personal encounters with God. And up to this point, he hadn't even had a personal encounter with God. Remember when God chose Gideon and many of these other judges, God personally went with the two of them, sent the angel of the Lord to recruit them. But in this case, it was the men who went and recruited Jephthah. But how is it? that he has such a strong belief in the sovereignty of God. Do you see any wavering? Do you see any nervousness? There's a quiet confidence. What is this confidence based upon? The word of God. Do you know why we can live by faith? Because we have a book written by the very finger of God. We have the very words of God, the inspired, preserved, inerrant, infallible word of God. You can place your faith in this. Now, there's a misconception this day and age. Faith is based on a gut feeling. It's not faith. It's a gut feeling. And for some of you, that's a very large feeling. That's not faith. Faith is based on the word of God. And that's why we see a very confident captain as he steps out, as he sends these letters, as he goes into battle. He says, 
I know that God has a purpose. This land has been given to Israel. God is going to give us the victory. Look what it says in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Remember in the Old Testament, these men were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he told his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers. But in this case, the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah. Then we get to his vow. Verse 30. So let me ask you what the circumstances are. Because how many of you even know what I'm talking about when we talk about Jephthah's vow? You've heard of Jephthah's vow. Good. You're familiar with that. Because... Before I decided to preach this message, I had a lot of misconceptions about Jephthah and his vow. One of my misconceptions was that Jephthah's faith was constantly wavering. And this vow was almost a plea bargain with God. It was almost a, God, let's make a deal. Let's go into this battle and God, I'll tell you what, if you give me the victory, I'll make a sacrifice. That's not the context of the chapter at all. The context of the chapter is here's Jephthah, a man who's very confident in God, in the will of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And when he writes these letters, there's no quaking, there's no quivering, there's no tremor in his voice, there's no fear in his heart. He says, if you lift a finger against Israel, you're lifting a finger against God and you cannot win this battle. So he doesn't go into this battle concerned or worried or fretting or fearful. He goes into this with great confidence. And when he makes this vow, what's verse 29 says, the Spirit of God is upon him. This is not rash. This is not bargaining with God. This is not begging God, you do me a favor and I'll do you a favor. That doesn't work and that doesn't please God. And that's not the context of Jephthah's vow. Read the chapter, Jephthah understands the sovereignty of God. And this vow is not a demonstration of doubt, but a demonstration of faith. When it says if, that doesn't mean there was concern or disbelief, unbelief in his voice or in his comments. Robert... If you get here at 10, we'll have donuts waiting 9.30. We can eat, get together. I'm not doubting that Robert gets here at 10. We're making an agreement. In this case, it's almost used in the context of since or when because look at what he says in his vow. Verse 30, Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth from this door of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall surely be the Lord's. How many of you see what Jephthah is doing? He's saying, God, when you make this happen, out of a heart of gratitude, I'm going to offer you whatever you desire. Now, hold on for a minute. I want you to think about this this morning. Jephthah so believed in the sovereignty of God. This was not 
a deal maker or a deal breaker. This is a man with a faith so strong that he said, God, when this is over, I want you to know. I love you. I want to praise you. I want to worship you. And whatever you send out of my front door is yours. God, whatever you desire is yours. Can you say that? Do you have enough faith to say, God, whatever you want in my life, you can have that? Out of gratitude, I want you to know, God, there's nothing off limits. Now, he had no idea what would walk out that door. But he so believed in the sovereignty of God, he said, God, you can make that choice. If it were one of us, most likely, we would have said, I have a calf, a dog, a frog, a horse, a sheep, a mule. God, I got 10000 in the bank. I got a little bit in my savings account. How often do we really offer God our best? Well, it's a common thing in this day and age for Christians to offer God their leftovers. God, let me, let me look at my monthly income and whatever I got in my income that's left over and won't affect me, I'll, I'll put that in the plate. It's not that you plan to give an offering. It's the offering plate came by, so let me just reach in there and see what I got. And Oh, thank God. I hope it's a small bill. Well, there's a five on top of that. There's a hundred there too. Let's go with the five. That's the way most of us offer things to God. But Jephthah's faith was so great, his understanding of the sovereignty of God so strong that he said, God, when this is over with, out of gratitude, I'm vowing a vow that whatever you want in my life, you can have. Some people say, well, he was expecting a sheep or a goat to walk out of his front door. He didn't know if that would be an animal or servant or a family member. Now, it did catch him off guard that it was his daughter. I don't think the reality of that really crossed his mind. I think that he thought God would be in an agreement and send out maybe his best and finest sheep. And that would be a sufficient sacrifice. We would be crazy to think that suddenly this man who was focused, this man who had a strong faith, this man who was following God, this man who was submitted to God's will, suddenly had a carnal moment and said, hey, I want to sacrifice my child. Never crossed his mind. To the contrary. Look what it says. Verse 34, Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. With timbrels and with dances, she was his only child beside her. He had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her, look at his reaction. This was unexpected. He rent his clothes. He ripped off his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me. Now let me ask you this. What could have been closer to his heart than his own daughter? I have two. My daughters are closer to my own heart than my own heart. If you ask me to choose between giving their life or my life, I would not even hesitate to say, take mine. Can't imagine the agony and the grief and the heartache of thinking this was not something he did at a 
careless or stupid moment. This was something he did by faith and said, God, whatever comes out of that house, whatever comes out of the door, I'm going to trust you with it. I'm going to give anything that you so desire. You tell me someone you know or see in the Bible with that level of faith. You say, Abraham, why is it that we avoid Jephthah and exalt Abraham? Explain that to me. Did not Abraham react upon a promise because Abraham knew that his son would be the father of a great nation? So he knew when he went up that mountain, he had God's promise. Jephthah doesn't have this promise. He had a personal promise. Jephthah had nothing more than a national promise. Abraham had been directly, personally meeting with God. Jephthah didn't have any of those advantages. Jephthah was living in a very wicked day and age and was being defined by his culture. But despite that, his faith was so strong that he said, God, whatever you want in my life, you can have. Now the debate is, was his daughter sacrificed? We know this. Leviticus 5, verse 4 and 5 explains if a man makes a vow and says, I've done wrong, he can confess, go to the priest, make things right, and that vow will be nullified. We also know in Leviticus, a man makes a vow and it involves a person. He wants to redeem that person. He can for 30 pieces of silver. Jephthah just went into the battle. He has the spoils of war. 30 pieces of silver is a small price to pay. But I want you to think about this. His faith was so strong, he was not bargaining with God because if this was a rash vow and he was bargaining with God, he would have quickly backed out or found an excuse or said, you know what? I was in a hurry. I wasn't thinking. It was a rash moment. Let me just go down to the priest. Confess and back out. Or let me take 30 pieces of silver and buy out. Now the debate is, did she die or did she serve in the temple as a living sacrifice? Now, I'm not going to debate that this morning with you. That's not the point of the message. The point of the message, here's a man, go with me to Hebrews chapter 11, whose faith was highlighted. And think about this. Faith is built on the Word of God. He had five books to fall back on. We have 66 books of the Bible. In our language, translated, in our homes, how many of you have at least four or five copies of the Word of God accessible? That's what I thought, the majority of us. So why is it that we don't have faith? We have a church, we have preachers, we have preaching. We, we can go to the radio, we can go to CDs. We have access to good Christian books. We have a million things that can help build our faith. Jephthah didn't have access to any of this. But despite the fact, look how strong his faith was. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the Bible says this. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Hebrews 11 mentions Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, 
Enoch, Noah. How many of you have heard those men in their lives preached on? Their faith is exalted. We look up to those men and say, what great men of faith. In Jephthah, we totally avoid. We don't know what to do with the man. There's a man with a crazy vow. No, there's a man with an incredible faith. Despite his times, despite the fact he didn't have conferences to go to, a pastor to teach him, discipleship to do, a church that could help him out, or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here was a man that knew the word of God enough that when he went to speak to the king of Ammon, he literally quoted scripture and said, there's a sovereign God in heaven that gave that land to Israel and you would be a fool to lift a finger against God. With confidence, he goes into battle. And with confidence, he said, God, you are so sovereign, I want to give you a gift and you get to pick the gift. And then... When he sees his daughter, if this would have been a rash vow, he would have backed out and said, the deal's off. But this wasn't a bargaining chip with God when he went to battle. This was a commitment. This was a promise. This was something he did by faith. And though he grieved him. Now, don't worry. God will never ask anything like this of you. You don't need to get concerned. This was a different time, a different dispensation, a different day and age. And whether or not she was sacrificed, whether or not she lived in the temple, uh, that's not up for debate at the moment. The fact is, here was a man that was willing to say, God, whatever you want in my life, you can have it. And even though it cost me something great, I'm not going to back out. I'm not going back on my promise. How many of you remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5? We better go there. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. So what does he call a person who vows a vow and doesn't want to pay it? A fool. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay you know we're living in a day and age of people that make vows and have no intention of paying that vow. Stand up here on a platform in a church house, make a lifetime commitment for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health. Till death do us part. And six months later, they're at the courthouse filing paperwork for divorce. God says, when it comes to a vow, you better be serious. Now, if you never made the vow, it wouldn't be an issue at all. But you stood up and publicly made a vow. People made a vow. I want to serve God. I want to love God. I want to follow God. I want to be a faithful Christian. I want to get involved in a ministry. And we now make vows so flippantly and carelessly. We talk about Jephthah and a rash vow, but this was anything but a rash vow because he said, I made a promise. And his own daughter said, Dad, you made a promise. Let's keep the vow that you have made. About time as Christians, we stood up and said, hey, we made a vow. You know what, in your marriage, it's a lot easier to work through things when you understand that's a vow, and God saw that vow, and God heard that vow, and God's going to hold you to that vow. 
My wife and I have had a good marriage. But during our conflicts, there was never any doubt that we would be together for life because we made a vow. And it helps you get through the conflicts when you know we better get through this because we're going to live together until death. Not any fun living with a conflict for the rest of your life. We better work this out. But if you're constantly looking at each other saying, if you do that again, I'm going to leave you. You're, not, you're never going to fix anything till you fix your mentality. But we have a generation that doesn't put any stock or value in a vow. Well, preacher, you don't understand my circumstance. You don't understand how difficult this is. And I'm not talking about your past. I'm not, listen, if you've been divorced or divorced and remarried, I'm not, listen, your past is behind you that's under the blood and God wants you to have a great future. I don't want to beat you over the head with your past, but I'm talking about right now, your marriage, your present marriage right now. God's will is not for you to get a divorce. God's will is for you to keep your vow. God's will is not for you to jump out of that ministry. God's will is for you to keep that vow. God's will is not for you to jump out of that faith promise. God's will is for you to keep that vow. Maybe we should have just preached on the vow this morning. I'm sensing the nerve is right here. And he said, I will pay my vow. Did you know that faith and fear of God are inseparable? This is a very interesting generation to, to be a pastor. Now in Christianity, people have separated faith and the fear of God. And people use faith as a term to justify unrighteous behavior now we use this terminology faith in the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit led me to do that I have faith that this is going to turn out right people that talk about defying disobeying a Bible principle you know I'm just going to divorce this person but I truly believe I truly have faith that God's going to work this out no he's not going to work that out you don't have faith you have an emotion you have a gut feeling. You have a confused mind. You have a disobedient heart. Faith is based on the word of God. And God's word says, till death do you part. But we have a generation that likes to talk about faith, but it doesn't include the fear of God. That's not Bible faith. We see a holy fear of God. Why did he keep his vow? He said, there are things I will do and won't do because I'm a child of God. And his faith produced and was connected to a righteous and holy fear of God. You know what we have in today's Christianity? A group of Christians that has no fear of God. Do anything, live in any sin, live a double life. Do things on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday that are blatantly contrary to Scripture, yet they justify that and say, God's all about my happiness. I have bad news for you. God's not all about your happiness. God is about your joy. God is about your best welfare. Six Flags is about your happiness. Walmart is about your happiness. Disney World is about your happiness. Your credit card is about your happiness. That's not God. You've gotten confused. Unless Walmart is your God. And that may be the case. 
But God is concerned about your joy, not your happiness. You better understand you have a true faith. You have a fear of God. And my faith in God has kept me on track because I know, listen, I, I fear God. And there are things I simply, I will not do certain things. Because you say, is God a mean old man in heaven just waiting to punish you? No, absolutely not. He's a loving and a merciful God, but he's also a God of righteousness and holiness. And there are things he won't let you get away with. And I have a marriage, and I don't want to pay those consequences in my marriage. And I have children, I don't want to pay those consequences with my children. And I have a ministry, and I don't want to pay those consequences in my ministry. And faith is always inseparable with a fear of God. And you cannot have faith and lack a fear of God. It's simply impossible. And it was his faith and fear of God that led him to keep this vow. Everything in the Christian life is based on faith. Salvation is based on faith. No greater confusion in this day and age than the lies being propagated by churches all across this world that says... Your eternal life is based upon a work plus faith. God says it's faith. Amen. Go with me to John 3, 16 and we'll be done. Faith will change your life. Faith will change your future. Justification, salvation, eternal life. It's all based on faith. John three fifteen that whosoever believeth, that's faith. Putting your faith and trust in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I don't believe there's a greater, there is any greater typology in the Old Testament than the typology found in the story, Judges 11, Jephthah. When Jephthah gave his daughter, it was one life for the salvation of a nation. When God gave his son, it was one life for the salvation of the world. There was no resistance. There was a common agreement. This daughter, whatever she did, she was not forced to do. She chose to do. Whether that was a living sacrifice or a literal sacrifice, it was her choice. And Jesus Christ was not forced to die for our sins, but he made a choice and laid down his life so that you might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son to the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, look what it says in verse 18. Is faith. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. How this world and how religion is so complicated salvation. That's why most religious people live very frustrated. They give people a set of rules and say, keep these rules. There's only one problem. You have a human nature and you will fail to keep those rules. You will fail repeatedly. So people bounce around. Well, the Mormon church has a set of rules and the Catholic church has a set of rules and the Methodist church has a set of rules and the Pentecostal church has a set of rules and every religion has a new set of rules. So they bounce around trying to find a set of rules that will accommodate their lifestyle. There's only one problem. The church doesn't set the standard for you to make it into heaven. God sets the standard. And actually, God makes it very simple because 
that church will say, unless you do this and that, and the list gets longer and longer, and then you've already broken the rule by Monday. And you go back on Sunday, put a smile on your face, and act like you obey the rules. You didn't obey the rules. You <laughs> broke them, and you know it. And so did the leaders of those denominations. No man can keep enough rules to make it into heaven. I don't care what religion you've tried out, you will always fall short for all have sinned and come short. Every man on the planet has fallen short of the glory of God. Thankfully, salvation is not through a work or by a work, but by faith. Aren't you thankful that salvation is by faith and that at some point you stop putting faith in yourself? Now, you've got a choice because denominations say put faith in yourself and God says put faith in my son. Now, if you have to make a choice between putting your faith in yourself or in God's son, the logical decision would be just put your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your religion. Repent of your false beliefs. Repent of yourself and your sin. Weren't you thankful one day you understood that? And by faith, you repented of your sin, trusted Christ your Savior. Do you remember the difference in that feeling that you had not salvation not based on a feeling? But it sure was nice when you were basing your salvation on faith in a good work. Boy, that's frustrating. You live a life of frustration. You know that you're constantly failing. You know you can't achieve. You know you're looking around at others who act like they're achieving, and you know that's hypocrisy. They're faking it because you simply can't live that good of life. You can't meet that standard. But here's what faith in God's Son does. Boy, it brings relief. Because salvation no longer depends upon you. But it depends upon the mercy and grace and goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today. But more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.